Strange Studies of Strange Stories. There was once a little man called Niggle, who had a long journey to make. He did not want to go, indeed the whole idea was distasteful to him, but he could not get out of it. He knew he'd have to start sometime, but he did not hurry with his preparations. Niggle was a painter, not a very successful one, partly because he had many other things to do, and most of these things he thought were a nuisance. But he did them fairly well when he could not get out of them, which, in his opinion, was far too often. The laws in his country were rather strict. There were other hindrances, too. For one thing, he was sometimes just idle and did nothing at all. For another, he was kind-hearted in a way. You know the sort of kind heart. It made him uncomfortable more often than it made him do anything. And even when he did anything, it did not prevent him from grumbling, losing his temper, and swearing, mostly to himself. All the same, it did land him in a good many odd jobs for his neighbor, Mr. Parrish, a man with a lame leg. Occasionally, he even helped other people from further off, if they came and asked him to. Also, now and again, he remembered his journey and began to pack a few things in an ineffectual way. At such times, he did not paint very much. Well, pack your bags, because we're heading off to Tolkien Country! Woo-hoo! With this week's story, Leaf by Nickel. Soon to be a 45-part miniseries accompanied by three sets of three film trilogies. Wow. Here on Strange Studies of Strange Stories, we are just going to talk about the short story itself, however... I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. We are broadcasting this free episode for September on strangestudies.com as well as Patreon. We produce six shows a month on all the strangest genre fiction, so please consider subscribing if you have not already. J.R.R. Tolkien's Leaf is what I'm calling the miniseries. One of the many offerings on my new streaming service, Ding Dong Tron. We stream everything at Ding Dong Tron. We got music, movies. You can play games there. You can talk to ghosts. You can shoot crazy beams of electricity across the room. Wow. We got a few episodes of Airwolf. What? So, you know, it's the whole package. Speaking of the whole package, our reader today is none other than Chad Fess. Yes, actor and musician extraordinaire Chad Fess is joining us once again. The word Fess, by the way, often used as a shortened version of confess, as in mm-hmm. fess up now. Oh, right, yeah. That weasel doesn't belong to you, does it? Do they say that in England, fess up? No. They don't? That's an Americanization. They do not. Another word we should define that is an English word primarily, I think, is in the title of the story, niggle. <laughs> I have to admit, when you sent the title of the story over, I read it and shook my head kind of cartoon-like, leaf by what now? But that is our main character's <laughs> name, and the word niggle means slight but persistent annoyance, as yes. in a suspicion niggled at the back of her mind, or you may have heard of a niggling pain. Mm. I believe this is more commonly used in the UK, but I I wasn't entirely unfamiliar with it. I've read it in books. You don't hear it out loud too much for obvious reasons, but it's not connected to the slur. It is the main character's name, but that definition is definitely relevant to the theme of today's story, which was originally written by J.R.R. Tolkien, 1938, and was first published in the Dublin Review in January 1945. It can be found in Tolkien's book, Tree and Leaf which also contains the essay on fairy stories. The whole text of Tree and Leaf is also contained in my old paperback copy of the Tolkien Reader, along with The Adventures of Tom Bombadil and Farmer Giles of Ham. Have to fess up, pulling that one off the shelf, the spine was pretty uncracked. Yeah. Uh, Not quite the rip-roaring Lord of the Rings style adventure I was hoping for when I I scooped it up from the book fair as a lad. Uh Have you ever read this story before? I haven't, no. I found it on a website that was talking about great fantasy 
short fiction mm. that was out there. So I was like, oh, okay. And it's Tolkien. We've never covered him on the show before. So why not? Let's give it a whirl. Yeah. Well, it's not fantasy in the way you would think, though. No. Right? It's, no. it's, it's not in Middle Earth. Although on Ding Dong Tron, I think you'll find we've <laughs> rectified that situation. Gone ahead and set Leaf in Middle Earth. Niggle is a Balrog. Oh, wow. We've changed his name to Pat Nigel. He's got sure. two sassy Balrog daughters. And um, he's married to Patricia Arquette. But I don't want to give away too much. So let's actually talk about the real life of J.R.R. Tolkien. His full name is John Ronald Raoul Tolkien, and he was born in 1892 in South Africa. Hmm. I didn't know that. At a region now called Free State Province. His dad was a banker and he was sent there to work for an English bank. When he was three, he and his mother and his brother went to England for an extended visit, but his father died of rheumatic fever before he could join them. Oh, man. Now, supposedly Tolkien could read and write when he was very young at the age of four. He said he didn't like Treasure Island and going back to last month's coverage of the Alice in Wonderland related stuff, hmm. he thought Alice's adventures in Wonderland was amusing, but disturbing. Because of his father's death, the Tolkien family was left without an income when he passed away. And so they went to live with extended family in Birmingham. He was educated at home with his mother and he had two great loves that developed in this time during his early education. He loved botany, which manifested in him drawing landscapes and trees. So that's obviously relevant to today's story. Mm -hmm. And of course he fell in love with languages, which became a focus of his life throughout. His mother taught him Latin very, very early. His mother died when he was 12 and he and his brother were taken in by family friends who to be Catholic. He had a pretty upper middle class lifestyle. Mm. He did a lot of traveling as a teenager, took a summer holiday to Switzerland. That's well documented in a letter. Yeah, I believe that holiday was a bit of a basis for Bilbo's journey in The Hobbit, mm -hmm. at least some of the topography. He also was already getting into poetry as a teenager, as well as constructed languages, languages that didn't really exist. And he learned Esperanto, which is perhaps the most famous constructed language. Whoa. Made me wonder if he saw the William Shatner movie Incubus, which is all in Esperanto. It came out before he died. So he could have conceivably yeah. seen it. Yeah. He died in the 70s, right? So he yeah. could have seen mm -hmm. that movie was like 66 or something like that. Esperanto is more popular now than it ever has been. Like there's huge communities. There's millions of people that speak it because it's this neutral yeah. ground of language. So people are willing to learn that so they can go meet other people from other countries that have, have learned it as well. Tolkien, who was referred to as Ronald, that was what he went by. He didn't go mm -hmm. by John, he went by Ronald. He hooked up with an older woman, Edith Mary Bratt, when he was still a teenager and she was three years older than him, but they finally got married in 1916. I don't know if the age was the most scandalous aspect. It was more that she was a Protestant. <gasps> Zooms! Yeah, that is a scandal. <laughs> in 1914, England got into the First World War, and he didn't enlist right away and mm. was shunned a bit for not doing so because everybody was pretty pro-war, and he was like, eh, I don't know about that war business, but eventually yeah. he got pulled into the war. In 1916, he was finally sent to France. I think that he was pretty out in the open that he was somewhat of a physical coward and he didn't really care about these types of things. And that played into it too, despite mm -hmm. his, whatever his war sentiments were. Writing about when he had to finally go to France, the Tolkien spent the night before his departure in a room at a hotel in Birmingham. He later wrote, junior officers were being killed off a dozen a minute. Parting from my wife then, it was like a death. And reading that just hit me because so much of his work, including this story, concerns that idea of leaving for a journey and yeah. knowing I may not come back. And if I do, 
I will not be the same and nothing I'll, nothing will be the same because even if this stays the same, I'll be viewing it through sure. changed eyes. He was part of a lot of battles and it seemed like it was a pretty hellish experience for him. Mm. Towards the end of the war, he wasn't doing very well and he got assigned to the hospital and also garrison duties. And he was finally taken off active duty in 1919. He left the military with the rank of lieutenant in 1920. He lost a lot of his closest school friends in the war. One positive thing from Tolkien's experience that I think we still feel today is that the class system of England didn't quite translate. Obviously, you might be, if you're upper class or upper middle class as he was, you're going to get rank much faster. And the farmers and um, working class folks are going to be your soldiers or Tommies, I guess what they called them at the time. But he developed close relationships with those folks because out on the battlefield, that stuff didn't really matter and Mm -hmm. developed a real affection for farmers and working class folks that he otherwise wouldn't have been able to mix with. And I think that sort of multi-class fellowship is, again, very present in his work. And from there, Mm -hmm. it influenced so many other stories. The idea that the adventuring group is disparate and being thrown together for a task versus, say, a group of knights, as you would have in Arthurian legend or, or samurai. His first job was working on the Oxford English Dictionary, and later he took a post at the University of Leeds, my neck of the woods, Mm -hmm. as a reader in English language. While he was there, he produced a definitive edition of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight with E.V. Gordon. In 1925, he returned to Oxford at Pembroke College as a professor of Anglo-Saxon. During this time, he was working on a translation of Beowulf, which he didn't finish until 1926. On the campus, he was known for his dramatic readings of the text. I wish we could have gotten him on the show. So around this time, he wrote The Hobbit, as well as the first few books of Lord of the Rings. The Hobbit was published in 1937 to wide acclaim. In 1939, he was pulled into World War II as a codebreaker. After the war, he moved over to Merton College in Oxford as a professor of English language and literature. The Fellowship of the Ring was published in 1954, with the two towers coming out later that same year and Return of the King in 1955. Now, he wanted to get the Silmarillion published with the series, but publishers had no interest in it whatsoever. Mm. And it wouldn't see the light of day until after his death in 1977. Did you ever, did you ever read that book? I didn't because it's okay. it's not really a story. It's just... It's more of a history, right? It's a history of a made-up place, which kind of seems like something I'm not particularly interested in. Hmm. Tolkien died in 1971 at the age of 82. As we said, this story, Leaf by Nigel, was written back in 1938, published in 1945. In a letter to Stanley Unwin, featured on uh, TolkienLibrary.com, I found, Tolkien writes, that story was the only thing I have ever done which cost me absolutely no pains at all. Usually I compose only with great difficulty and endless rewriting. I woke up one day with that odd thing virtually complete in my head. Took only a few hours to get down and then copy out. And Hmm. as we'll see, this story is kind of an allegory for that very process, for Tolkien's own creative process, and to an extent his own life. He didn't like the story being called explicitly allegorical, but it clearly is. And he admitted it was of that nature in another letter to Carolyn Everett from 1957, in which he wrote, I should say that, in addition to my tree love, was originally called The Tree, it arose from my own preoccupation with The Lord of the Rings, the knowledge that it would be finished in great detail or not at all, and the fear, near certainty, that it would be not at all. The war had arisen to darken all horizons, but no such analyses are a complete explanation, even of a short story. So it's about that stuff, but I think we can bring a lot of our own experiences to this. So uh, Mm. let's just get into it. It begins by describing our protagonist, Nickel. He's an artist and he lives miles away from the main village. He just wants to paint a tree specifically, but he's so meticulous that he spends hours just on a leaf, which would make finishing a painting of a whole tree something of a task. Yeah. It says Niggle has this long journey to undertake, but the story doesn't really explain what that's about at first. 
He's constantly interrupted by mundane things, people needing help, just all the distractions of life keeping him from his work. And that is something, you know, I think all of us could relate to. We're all trying to get our things done that we're really into, but then you've got to brush your teeth and you've got to yeah. mow the lawn and you have to Ugh. feed your children and all these things that are just really a pain in the ass that you don't want to have to deal with but you gotta the story is great at the top it got less engaging as it went but that beginning was probably my favorite part because of what you're talking about yeah now Nichols' closest neighbor is this guy mr parish and his wife parish is a guy who has a lame leg and he asks for a lot of help with various things and Niggle doesn't seem to do well with boundaries, so he spends a lot of time, more than he would like, helping out Mr. Parrish. He was kind-hearted in a way. You know the sort of kind heart. It made him uncomfortable more often than it made him do anything. <laughs> and even when he did anything, it did not prevent him from grumbling, losing his temper, and swearing mostly to himself. Man, it's, that hits close to home. And then finally, those last sentences. Now and again, he remembered his journey and began to pack a few things in an ineffectual way. At such times, he did not paint very much. I thought maybe a real journey would come up because I didn't know what the story was about. But given the tone of it thus far, I, I was pretty sure he's referring to the great journey that we'll all be going on, death. And that that's just kind of how it is. The things that get bumped to the bottom of the list that you probably should take care of for your old age. You know, I got to get that will sorted out or that retirement account. <laughs> I'm sure some Sunday is going to come along where I'll be motivated to knock it all out, right? That's happening some at some point, right? Mm. His leaf painting gradually turns into a tree painting and it's getting bigger. Nigel keeps expanding it until it's huge. He needs a ladder to be able to paint this thing. Which is cool. Oh, wow, your project just keeps expanding to this whole world. But as a creator, you can also recognize that anxiety. This is getting out of hand. Like it's gonna take so much time to do this right now that I've moved the goalposts and made it a bigger thing. Now Nigel really wishes that there would be some kind of public pension for art and for painting. But there isn't, so he's got to work. I loved this articulation of the way he feels about his picture. One day, Niggle stood a little way off from his picture and considered it with unusual attention and detachment. He could not make up his mind what he thought about it, and wish he had some friend who would tell him what to think. Actually, it seemed to him wholly unsatisfactory, and yet very lovely. The only really beautiful picture in the world. What he would have liked at that moment would have been to see himself walk in and slap him on the back and say with obvious sincerity, Absolutely magnificent. I see exactly where you're getting at. Do get on with it and don't bother about anything else. We'll arrange for a public pension so that you need not. <laughs> I was watching this thing recently about Chris Farley, the comedian uh -huh. who sadly passed away and how he was so obviously funny but also constantly asking for affirmation from other people. Sure. And his brother related that when they were kids, their father was very, very obese and would put on this blue suit to go out and work. And he would say to all the kids, how do I look? How do I look in my suit? And they'd say, dad, you look great in that suit. You look great, mm -hmm. but he did not look great. <laughs> they were just, they just wanted to make him feel better. <laughs> right. Because they loved him. Well, Chris Farley carried that with him because deep down you're thinking, how can I trust what anybody says? If they're telling me I'm great, aren't they just doing what I was doing for my dad? And so it just makes you mistrust all feedback. Wow. Even when people are sitting there laughing, you think, are they really laughing? Uh -huh. Or do they just like me and not want me to feel bad? I totally get what he's saying about having somebody just slap you on the back and say, good job, good work. Yeah. Because every time you've been there, you write a script, you give it to somebody to read, and what you really want is them to just go, wow, this is awesome. 
Oh my God. <laughs> Nothing's worse is when you write a script and send it to somebody and they're like, I have some thoughts. No, <laughs> you know, you need them. They're probably right about whatever they're going to tell you. Absolutely. But what you want to hear is like, dude, I read that and it just, yeah, I think I'm done reading. You did it. <laughs> You finished literature. <laughs> so, one day, Nickel gets a visit from Parrish, his neighbor with a lame leg, who is a, a very good gardener. But Nickel doesn't really give a toss about his own garden, and that bugs Parrish. And Parrish never pays any mind to Nickel's painting, and he never comments on it one way or the other, which is almost worse than saying something bad about it. Yeah. It's, it's like it's just not worth commenting on. Is that, At least that's how Nickel feels. Nickel desperately wishes that he could have some feedback on his work, but he gets none because these people don't seem to communicate. <laughs> that just made me think, you know, him not saying anything. I saw Mallory O'Mara tweet the other day that she goes, you know, when you talk to authors, you don't have to tell them if you didn't read their book. <laughs> like, they're not going to ask. <laughs> I was like, oh, I so feel that. <laughs> just because I've been seeing family recently. <laughs> hey, so good to see you. I hear you have that show. I haven't listened to it. But you don't. <laughs> You don't need yeah. to talk about it at all. No, don't bring it up. But I doubt Parrish even knows that he should say something. Yeah. He doesn't know the importance of that painting to uh, no. to the artist at all. Now, Parrish is there because his wife is ill and he would like Niggle to go fetch the doctor for her. Niggle insists that she just has a cold, but Parrish has a bum leg and Niggle has a bicycle. So Niggle does his best to say no, but doesn't and accepts the task. Also, Parrish's roof is leaking and he asks Niggle to get a builder to come out as well. He keeps hinting, you know, if I had a big stretch a canvas we could cover this hole in the roof now and not bother the builders and he's just doing his painting on the huge canvas like hmm, yeah, yeah, i guess that would be a good thing to have i, I think that's partly wh why he decides to go because no way is he going to sacrifice this painting to patch a hole in the roof yeah but he's also thinking his wife's not that sick and you don't yeah. know the backstory but you get the idea. Mm -hmm. So curse that he says to himself, he goes out on his bicycle. By the way, I really did dive into the story without knowing exactly what to expect. And because it was Tolkien, I thought maybe it was set in Middle Earth. I did too. It feels like it could be in the Shire. It yeah. had a hobbity kind of feeling to it. And then he uh -huh. pops on a bicycle and I'm and like, like oh, I don't think they have those because if the fellowship, they, they could have covered more ground if they were all on 10 speeds, you know, <laughs> these are just regular old people. And that sort yeah. of, I have to admit, diminished my enjoyment of it a little bit, even though it's so not relevant. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And I also got a little worried that this maybe wasn't a fantasy story. When right. I was, when I got to that part, I go, oh, no, did we just pick a story that's not fantasy? It's just about some dude who's an artist. I'm like, oh, no, I hope it gets weird or strange in some way. And it does. Yeah, I hope some hearts get eaten at the end of this or something at least. <laughs> but, you know, earlier talking about momentum with creative tasks, I think a bicycle is also a great metaphor for that. Like if I'm out driving in traffic and a cyclist will barely slow down for a stop sign sometimes, just blow through an intersection. I don't ever really get mad about it because I know if they come to a complete stop, they have to pedal like crazy to get going on sure. that again. And, and I relate to that. Yeah. As an artist. Uh, he goes off on this journey to get the doctor and find the builders. Uh, the day is windy and raining and poor little Niggle gets wet. So wet that he himself gets ill. He mostly completes the task. He found the doctor. He left a note at the builders, although the builder had already gone home to his fireside and the doctor did not set out as promptly as Niggle had done. And I like that sense of him being a martyr. You know, why am I trying so hard when it seems like everybody else is just half-assing it? Yeah. Should I be mad at them or should I care less? There's a lot in this story about people acknowledging or not acknowledging deeds and favors and yeah. actions. Uh -huh. You know, it's brought up a lot in the story. Like this person, did this thing, nobody said anything. It's interesting. I'm not sure how it ties into the whole bit. Well, it gives you some insight into Tolkien that you might not otherwise have had. Sure. 
because you don't, you know, in Lord of the Rings, Gandalf's like, nobody mentioned my fireworks. You know, he's not like <laughs> upset about these things. So it's, it's cool to see. So the next day, Mrs. Parrish is fine. It was just a cold. But Niggle is in bed for days. The builders never show up to do the repairs on Parrish's roof. So after Niggle gets better, he's finally able to paint again, but he receives an unexpected visitor. The man is the inspector of houses, and he says that Parrish's house is in a sad state. And he tells Niggle off for not helping his neighbor to fix his house. And he points out, look, you've got a canvas and paint right here that you could have done the job with. And Niggle like, looks around and goes, what are you talking about? I don't have anything like that. The guy goes, no, that. And he points at his painting. Niggle's horrified by this. But the guy says, houses come first. That's the law. Hmm. And then another guy comes up and says something to the inspector and tells Niggle that his carriage is there to take him on his trip. Now, the inspector is miffed that Niggle has to go on his trip now with the job unfinished, but at least they can use his canvas. This part feels very nightmare-like. You know, he just has a little tiny bag. He doesn't have any clothes, but he still has to grab his things and go. Oh, my God. And then he loses them on the train later. Those are all of the dreams I'm having right now about moving, you know. But I didn't bring my stuff or I forgot it. And I couldn't help but think, there it is. He's died. This inspector of houses is a death figure. And the picture is left unfinished. He never got to get it done because of all the little niggling things. Creative things are never done. There's just the moment you stop working on it. George Lucas. (laughs) So Niggle is taken to a train station, loaded on a train, and stuck in a sleeping compartment. The train almost immediately goes into a dark tunnel. He awakes as they pull into a station. A porter tells him that he needs to go to the workhouse. Why he's put in a workhouse is odd, but why he doesn't seem to question any of it is odder. Mm. His conditions are not pleasant, but they're not horrible either. He's fed, not beaten, just has lots of work to do, which he does. And the story says this, at first, during the first century or so, I'm merely giving the impressions, He used to worry aimlessly about the past. It seems to have a dreamlike logic. Things are batshit in a dream, but you just accept it and go along with it. That's something we didn't address too much talking about Alice last month. While those stories mimic the awareness and open mind of a child, adults still possess that in nightmares and dreams. Mm -hmm. You just go, oh, this is what's happening now. I better do what they're asking. And that's, that's what it feels like. And he laments not helping Parrish with his roof sooner. Maybe Mrs. Parrish wouldn't have gotten the cold. It says, at any rate, poor Niggle got no pleasure out of life. Not what he used to call pleasure. So he works long and hard. He doesn't ever get a thank you again until one day a doctor comes in and tells him to go to bed. So he rests in the dark. I don't have a lot of Catholic education, but the whole episode there of just working and working. And by the way, he got kind of used to it all, mm-hmm. you know, accepted it at one point, got good at the work he was doing even. Yeah. But it sounded like purgatory. I thought the same thing. Yeah. So he hears some men talking in the hallway outside about Niggle. The first voice says, yes, but it did not function properly. And his head was not screwed on tight enough. He hardly ever thought at all. Look at the time he wasted, not even amusing himself. He never got ready for his journey. He was moderately well off, and yet he arrived here almost destitute and had to be put in the pauper's wing. A bad case, I'm afraid. I think he should stay for some time yet. But then another man's voice advocates for Niggle. He's only a little man. He was never meant to be anything very much, and he was never very strong. Let us look at the records. Yes, there must be some favorable points, you know. He was a painter by nature, in a minor way, of course. Still, a leaf by Niggle has a charm of its own. He took a great deal of pains with leaves, just for their own sake but he never thought that made him important. There is no note in the records of his pretending even to himself that it excused his neglect of things ordered by the law. So these guys seem to know a lot about Niggle. Mm. And at this point, I was like, okay, this is this is an allegory for death and judgment and the afterlife and all of these things. And I was 
trying not to pay attention to that stuff and just kind of take it at face value. But at this point, it was getting very difficult. Like the, the reality of it, like if these men were in charge of a workhouse, how would they know these things about him? These are obviously inner thoughts. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, you know, it, it was that it's not hardcore religious, but it seemed more like that it's a wonderful life guardian angel type setup. Yeah. First yeah. voice is maybe God and the more sympathetic voice is maybe like a friendly angel or guardian angel of some sort. That beginning where it's the constellations and they're talking about the life of George Bailey, it was very similar to that. The advocate says that Niggle never expected anything in return on all the times he helped people. And he brings up the parish never helped Niggle or even showed any gratitude at all, which is like, man, that parish guy, what a jerk. <laughs> so the advocate points out that he went out in the rain to help Parish and his wife, even though he thought it was all pointless. It was truly a selfless act. The first voice asks what the advocate suggests they do with Niggle, and he says, I think it is a case for a little gentle treatment now. So in purgatory, do you, I mean, how do you get out of it? Purgatory is a creation of Catholicism. It's not yeah. in the Bible anymore. But I'm saying within the rules of, of that creation. The rules, I, well, you used to have somebody that was alive pay, pay for you to get out. Oh, really? I think so. I'm not Catholic. Oh, cool. Well, see, that's one of those end of life things that got to work out. Who's going to buy me out of purgatory? Let me write that down <laughs> on the list. I'll, get, I'll take care of that on Sunday. There might be another way that I'm not aware of, but I'm pretty sure money was the way you got. Got it. And the indulgence. Money of your, yeah, indulgence, yeah. So they come and talk to Niggle and... They know that he was listening in. Nagel's first question is about Parrish. He's worried about Parrish, and he stresses that he was a good neighbor, and he wishes to see Parrish again. And Parrish was great because he sold Nagel potatoes for really cheap. So he's a good guy. And yeah. it's kind of strange that Niggle's advocating for Parrish, but I guess he does like him on some level. I think it's that idea that, you know, just like with anything, one tends to speak the complaint aloud and keep the nice stuff close to the vest. Yeah. So an observer might think you really don't like something, somebody. It's like, no, 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 I, I, I like them. I just, I guess the only thing I ever think to say, if I am going to have the energy to say something as a complaint. Yeah. But day to day, they're great. You just never hear that. These voices fade off, but he hears the advocate say that Parrish was a nice man and that Niggle will be going to the next stage. In the morning, he wakes up, he feels better. There's some comfortable clothes for him so he can get out of his hospital bed clothes. And they tell him to go to the train station and the porter will show him where to go. And all of this he just goes along with. He leaves the building. He sees that there's nothing else around but the train station down the hill. It's all shiny and brand new. There's an engine with just one car. He gets in. It's all freshly painted. Takes off immediately as if it were all for him, which clearly is the case. So the train takes him to the countryside by the sea. It stops out in the middle of nowhere. There's no platform or anything. Just a little trail that leads up to a wall with a gate. And then there's a bicycle that looks just like his by the gate. And there's a little tag on it that says Niggle. So he gets on the bike, he rides down this path, which eventually becomes a grass field, and he's just loving it. And this takes him to a tree, and Niggle can see that this is his tree, the tree that he's been trying to paint for so long. It's better than all of his attempts. It's a perfect, real version of his tree. It's a gift, he said. He was referring to his art, but also to the result. But he was using the word quite literally. He thinks of it as his vision, and Mr. Parrish's gardening skills made this real somehow. Because Parrish could make a real garden that was beautiful, and this was beautiful, so there's something in there that connects them together. And there's a distant forest that Niggle wants to explore, and he says this about it. As he walked away, he discovered an odd thing. The forest, of course, was a distant forest. Yes, he could approach it, even enter it, without its losing that particular charm. He had never before been able to walk into the distance without turning it into mere surroundings. It really added a considerable attraction to walking in the country because, as you walked, new distances opened out so that you now had doubled, 
trebled and quadrupled distances, doubly, trebly, and quadruply enchanting. You could go on and on and have a whole country in a garden, or in a picture, if you preferred to call it that. You could go on and on, but not perhaps forever. There were the mountains in the background. They did get nearer, very slowly. They did not seem to belong to the picture, or only as a link to something else, a glimpse through the trees of something different, a further stage, another picture. It's that idea that as creators, we can only really work around the edges of things that are that feel like they're already there. When you really hit on an idea, oftentimes you'll get that feeling. It just seems like it was given to you by the cosmos in a way. Mm. He's been doing this painting, but now he can, he can see all of the detail that he never got the time to fill in. The things that are really that he was just grasping for are there right in front of him. So Niggle examines this place and he studies it and he thinks he could use some improvements. He wishes Mr. Parrish was there to help him with this wild wood and make it a beautiful garden for all to experience. So he walks down to this area where he's gonna begin his work and he sees Mr. Parrish leaning on a spade and he calls to him. Mr. Parrish shouldered his spade and came up to him, still limped a little. They did not speak, just nodded as they used to do, passing in the lane. But now they walked about together, arm in arm, without talking. Niggle and Parrish agreed exactly where to make the small house and garden, which seemed to be required. They happily worked together, making this house and garden. Parrish says thank you to Niggle for putting in a good word for him, talking about the voices from the workhouse. And he says, oh, don't thank me. It's that second voice that you owe the thanks to, which was like, ugh. Now, then it made me go, oh, is is the second voice, the advocate, is that Jesus? Is that the Christ? Oh, maybe it's Jesus, is yeah. Is that what's going on there? Nice guy, Jesus. You know, he's the one that got you into heaven, not not me. Yeah. Not, yeah, it was, it was Jesus. Hold up, Dad. These guys are nice. <laughs> so they work for some unknown amount of time and one day find a spring out in the woods and Niggle thinks that he always imagined in his painting that there was a spring out in the woods, but he never got around to actually painting it. They drink from the spring and it's invigorating. And before long, Parrish loses his limp. The time came when the house in the hollow, the garden, the grass, the forest, the lake, and all the country was nearly complete in its own proper fashion. The great tree was in full blossom. They finished that night. The next day they walk to the edge and they see a shepherd there and he asks if they need help or a guide. Now, Niggle wants to go on into the edge, whatever that is, but Parrish doesn't. He says he's got to wait for his wife before he goes on. And he thinks Mrs. Parrish will actually make this place nicer, this little home and this garden that they've made. Mm -hmm. She'll make it feel more cozy and accepting, you know, like a woman's touch in this house that they built. There's that domestic versus exploratory feeling. You know, he's going to stay and set up shop with his wife. Niggle's going to go out and explore those distant mountains of which, you know, the nature of which he's never really conceived. So they asked the guy where they are because they don't have a name for this place where the train dropped them off. The shepherd laughs and he said, well, it's called Niggle's country. It's Niggle's picture or most of it. A little of it is now Parrish's garden. And it finally clicks for Parrish. This is all from Niggle's painting. The shepherd says Niggle has been trying to tell him that for years, but you and your wife just called it nonsense. They kind of derided his artwork that he was yeah, doing. Yeah, that daubing, they called it. Uh-huh. So Niggle again comes to Parrish's defense. I didn't give you much chance to appreciate it. He says, I never tried to explain. And, you know, and I called you old earth grubber. But what does it matter? We've lived and worked together now. Things might have been different, but they could not have been better. So they worked it out. Yeah. And with that, Niggle leaves with a shepherd and into the beyond. They got into the borders of his picture. But what they are really like and what lies beyond them, only those can say who have climbed them. So we end the story with a conversation between Counselor Tompkins and a schoolmaster called Atkins. Tompkins thinks Niggle was just a silly little man and worthless to society, but Atkins defends him. Is this the first voice? 
And the advocate, is that who oh. these people are? Oh, maybe. I guess I just thought they were some, you know, after we've left heaven or whatever, we're, we were back clicking back down to some townspeople. And Tompkins okay. is that kind of jerk who's like, you know, he really just wanted the house that Nigel mm-hmm. was living in. So he had a country house as well as a city house. And he seems to be one of these people that writes everybody off and thinks of them as sort of grist for the mill. Tompkins thinks painting leaves is silly when one should be doing art that pushes, you know, the form forward. Plus, Nigel didn't even live in the village. So why are we talking about this guy? But there's something that Atkins can't get out of his mind. His painting was put to better use, obviously, in repairing these houses, but there was a piece of it that survived. Yeah, he says, I found a corner of it torn off, lying in a field. It was damaged, but legible. A mountain peak and a spray of leaves. I can't get it out of my mind. Out of your what? Says Tompkins, which I thought was a cool diss on Tompkins. (laughs) That was probably the last time Nichols' name ever came up in conversation. However, Atkins preserved the odd corner. Most of it crumbled, but one beautiful leaf remained intact. Atkins had framed it. Later, he left it to the town museum, and for a long while, Leaf by Niggle hung there in a recess and was noticed by a few eyes. But eventually, the museum was burnt down, and the Leaf and Niggle were entirely forgotten in his old country. It is proving very useful indeed, said the second voice, as a holiday and a refreshment. It is splendid for convalescence, and not only for that... For many, it is the best introduction to the mountains. It works wonders in some cases. I'm sending more and more there. They seldom have to come back. No, that is so, said the first voice. I think we shall have to give the region a name. What do you propose? The porter settled that some time ago, said the second voice. Train for Niggles Parish in the bay. He has shouted that for a long while now. Niggles Parish. I sent a message to both of them to tell them. What did they say? They both laughed. Laughed. <laughs> the mountains rang with it. And that's the end of the story. That's the end. It does feel like a pretty straightforward allegory about mm. life and death and purgatory and paradise and Nagel's not prepared for his trip, just like we're not prepared for death. I like that he went off into the mountains, though, in the end, because that is that sort of undiscovered country, a, a yeah. little like Frodo at the end of Lord of the Rings. I always love that he, yeah. you know, he went off into places we don't know about. And it's a bit of a reflection of Tolkien's own uh, religious philosophy. He had this creation and sub-creation, the idea that God is the true creator and that those who aspire to create are making echoes, he called them, mm-hmm. of, of the ultimate creation, and that that was a good thing. And there are those that create for selfish reasons or for vile reasons, and he called those mockeries, and that was bad or evil. Now, I'm not sure about the this reward and afterlife in heaven. I mean, he's given his painting made real and perfect. It feels like that is his vision was realized in a way that he was hoping to realize it, but I, mm-hmm. I don't make art to make something perfect. Like it's not, I'm not doing it to make a perfect thing. I feel like that art is more about a process and not the end. And this is about the end. It's about getting to the end that when you die, then all of your dreams are going to come true and you're going to be complete. And then what? <laughs> you are reaching for something though. You know, because when have you ever finished something and gone, nailed it? You know, it always <laughs> falls short in some way of an ideal you had in your head. And so perfection is that ideal you have in your head, which is what this 
is, and maybe it's saying something about the refuge of art, the fact that people, I assume when they die, are able to go and rest and recuperate in this place that he created, Mm -hmm. is a little how when I consume art, it is very life-affirming and restful in a way and, you know, can make you excited about things again and connect with experiences that maybe you haven't processed. And that it was somewhat an allegory for that. Yeah, I guess art, in my expression of art, has always been about communication, like communicating mm-hmm. an idea and connection, connecting with people, connecting with ideas. Like you make something and you want somebody to see it and get something out of it. And you want that connection right. with that person or mm-hmm. those that group of people. Or like we do this podcast, it's all about connection. That's, you know, we have all, all, all the people that listen to our show and they comment on the episodes and that stuff is what makes all of it worth it. It's not necessarily about getting to an end getting to a place where, ah, yes, I've created the perfect podcast. You just kind of Don Drapered your way into a, because I think that'll be a great slogan for Ding Dong Tron. It's all about <laughs> connection. Thanks, man. Uh, no problem. I'm glad I can, I can help with that. Yeah. I really enjoyed the story and I thought it was a cool allegory and hopefully people enjoyed listening to us talk about it. It definitely fits the concept of estrangement quite well. I think it gets you thinking about all the little things in life that keep you from doing what you want to be doing, but how what you want to be doing, you can never attain perfection anyway. So shouldn't we? There, There is the point in here where they're complaining about Niggle's life and he says he didn't really enjoy it. Yeah. Like that's a crime. And I thought that sort of tied back to the insight that was had. I made a joking reference to the sea is wet as wet can be, but there was the insight the main character had. I should just be sort of enjoying the ride instead uh-huh. of always being upset about everything. And I feel like this story hit on a little of that same thing. So was uplifting in that respect. I just really related to it and really liked it. I want to thank our reader once again for knocking it out of the park. He did actually do a perfect job. I (laughs) put it, I I, somehow, finally, an artist has done it. Chad Fest, thank you so much for reading. Next week, we're going to jump into another Manly Wade Wellman story called One Another, which is supposed to be pretty creepy, kind of cool story. So we're going to... We're going to dip into the the horror, creepy, strange again with that. I'm riddled with anticipation now. Also, this month, for subscribers, we're going to tackle Isaac Asimov's Bicentennial Man, which is a a seminal robot story. Not just a leaf. We're bringing in mountains, too. That's all (laughs) we have for this week. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackin. You've been listening to Strange Studies of Strange Stories. At strangestudies.com and Patreon. Strange Studies of Strange Stories. (laughs) 